0: So there's some things you just never forget. And this was a the day. These were days that I will never forget. I was standing I was standing in a courtroom waiting for the judge to give me my sentence. And everybody else in the courtroom was seated Only I was standing. And it was kind of embarrassing because I had one of those one of those orange, fluorescent orange jumpsuits, you know. And on the back were these big black letters that said Department of Corrections. And I had cuffs on my wrist. I had cuffs on my ankles combined with chains from my feet to my hands. And you know, maybe you 've seen it when the police walked me in, walked you walked a person in like that you 're just kind of walking like this it's just it 's just humiliating that 's how I felt and i'd already been through a long number of days of court proceedings. The prosecuting attorney had just man he was relentless testimony after testimony after testimony and and All this evidence piled up to prove my guilt. (laughs) And even though I lied and said not guilty at the beginning of it all, the truth is I was very guilty. I had done something horrible. Incredibly horrible. and My Court appointed defense attorney, bless his heart, he tried hard, all right? But there was really nothing that could be said in my defense. Everything was clear that I was guilty. As a matter of fact, when the, it, 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 during this first time when the jury came in and they had deliberated, it was like they only deliberated for hardly an hour and that's unheard of. Sometimes juries deliberate for days or at least for a long day. But this was like just for an hour. I was shocked by that. But then I shouldn't have been shocked because like what's there to talk about? It's obvious. The judge asked the foreman of the jury to stand and to, uh, he said, what, what, what is your decision the foreman stood up and he he read my first charge that was the greatest charge and he said we find in this charge the defendant guilty And when he said the word guilty, it was like he was taking a sledgehammer and a spike and just driving it into my heart. That's how it felt. And then with each charge that he read and he said the word guilty, it was like it was echoing in the room. Like not only the people in the room, but the whole world could hear hear that. And so now, after a break, they had brought me back in and I was standing alone. Everybody else was seated. And now it was time for the judge to to, read, to give my sentence. My, my, my lawyer had said, man, I mean, he was, he, there wasn't much hope there. He said, at the best, Eddie, it's going to be life without parole. At the most, at the worst, he said, it's going to be the death penalty. And so, so I stood there in front of the judge. He looked at me, and he began to read off the charges that I had been found guilty. And he said, it's the decision of this court that you will face the death penalty by lethal injection. I should have expected that. But it's like the foreman had given him, the judge, the the sledgehammer, and he just drove that nail deeper into my heart. There was a gasp in the crowd, and I even think some of the people in the crowd were probably happy, and I can even understand that. And so it was immediately after that, the policeman got up, and they took me, and they began to escort me out of the room. But then, all of a sudden, as we began to walk out of the room, there was a guy in the back in the, in the courtroom, and he got up, and I could see him. He looked to be in his early 30s. He went up to the bailiff. He whispered something to the bailiff, and then the bailiff went up to the judge, and the judge wh- whispered something, uh, the bailiff whispered something to the judge. And at that point, the bailiff stopped the policeman from escorting me out and had them bring me back to the table where I'd originally been standing So what had that guy just said? I looked at the judge to see what's going on. But the judge looked down at his bench with a very, very heavy, heavy face. Something had changed. I guess, I don't know. At that point I didn't. Then he looked up at me and he said, it is now the decision of the court based upon the request of this young man over here in the corner that he instead of you be executed and then I looked at the judge you can tell when somebody's getting ready to cry right the eyes went red there was a tear that started forming dropping down his cheek And he went on to add, and he said, and this young man is my son. And so I knew, I just knew, okay, they've already taken me back to my cell. I fell asleep, and I'm dreaming all of this because I know what you're thinking. That is such a far-fetched story. That doesn't happen in real life, and that's what I was thinking. Was I really standing there? So I looked at the judge I looked at his son who was looking at him. I looked at my my defense lawyer and he was like... And... Then I knew I wasn't dreaming because I could feel the policeman take my hands and unlock the cuffs from my hands, unlock the cuffs from my wrist, and rattle the chains. And they brought this young man over. They put the chains and the cuffs on his hands and his feet, and they led him away. And all the time, my mouth's just open. I'm speechless. I'm in shock. So then, I'm just standing there. And I'm thinking, well, what do I do now? And I think the judge must have known I was asking that. He looked at me, and he said, Mr. White, you're free. You're free to go. Like, I'm free to walk out, right? Yeah, so I did but as I was walking out how am I supposed to feel whoa I'm free no yeah I don't know because there was this heavy feeling of this guy is going to be executed in my place and it's not like they're forcing him to it's not like they made him it's like he requested it who does that and why And so I I was in this this fog, you might call it, this confusion as I walked out. I spent the next few days in that fog and confusion. Actually, it was five days because five days after that court sentencing was the execution, which I know that's kind of weird. Usually it's in our nation 15 to 20 years before a person is executed. But in the state that I was living in, According to their laws and according to the crime that I had committed, it was different. And so the execution, they had come up five days later. And you're going to think this is terrible of me. You're going to think this is weird. Or you're, maybe you're going to think this is really insensitive. But through my lawyer, I got permission from the judge to, to witness the execution. I know that's strange, isn't it? I don't know. I just felt like I should be there. So I went to the penitentiary where it was going to happen. They escorted me in. They took me to this to the execution chamber area viewing room. I walked into the viewing room. I opened the door, and there was the judge, and there was what I assumed to be his wife, and their children, and their friends all seated in there. It was a really small room. There were 15 to 20 people in there. And when I walked in, I mean, there's no forgetting who I am. They all just looked at me with this odd look. It was awkward. And I shut the door and I sat down. We're all just staring ahead at this huge glass window that's covered by a curtain. And then a few minutes later, the curtain opened. And it was one of those, I don't know the technical term for it, one-way windows where we can see them, they can't see us. So we're looking into the execution chamber. The judge's son is lying there on the gurney. He's already strapped down. He can't move. There's an a IV bag already hooked up to him. and There's a person, a medical attendant that went up to the IV bag and, and just opened the valve to the bag. And so we just kind of sat, no it didn't kind of, we just sat there in silence. And as I looked at him on the gurney, he was just staring at the ceiling. And the whole time I'm thinking, I was just that close from being there. And then, instead of looking at the ceiling, he turned towards our window. And not looking at his mother or his father or his siblings or his friends, he was staring. You don't forget this, he was staring straight at me. And I know, I said, he can't see me because it's one of those one-way glass windows. But I swear he could see me. And my eyes locked on him. <laughs> it's like we were staring at each other. And, and, and as I was watching him, his, his breathing was, was slowing down. You could see his chest movements. And then his eyes just slowly closed. His chest stopped moving. And he breathed his last. You know, his mother, his father, his brothers and sisters, they just cried. And I had tears that just started coming down my cheeks as well. He had died for me. After the death of the judge's son, things moved really at a, at a fast pace. On the same day that he had been executed, they had made arrangements, I'd heard this in the waiting room at the penitentiary, to bury him at a cemetery. And again, you're probably going to think it's insensitive of me or... or weird but I felt like I needed out of respect to go and so I went to the cemetery but I decided not to stand in with everybody else there because well I just because I couldn't so I kind of stood back by a tree almost like I was hiding behind a tree and from a distance I could see the judge, his wife and his children and the friends of the family and and there was a preacher that was there and I really couldn't hear him well but he was saying some nice words, I assume. I could tell that he led the people in a prayer and then after his prayer, the attendants, the employees of the cemetery, they went up to the casket, to the gravesite, to the hole that was there and they began to turn a lever and as they did, the, the casket would just slowly started going down into the ground. It's kind of like the finality of it. And I could hear from the distance where I was standing, most of all, his mother crying, his father, and his friends and siblings. The casket got to the bottom, and I still stayed behind the tree, watching and the family eventually they decided to they left they got in their cars and drove away but I just kind of hung out there and I don't know just stayed for a while and I watched there was this huge pile of dirt next to the gravesite. down deep was the casket and I watched as the cemetery attendants began to put the dirt back into the hole covering the casket all the way to the top And um, when they finished, they got in some old beat-up truck and drove away. And so I walked away to my car. And I continued to to be in this, I've been in the fog for so long, you know. This state of fog and confusion. And it's like, what what do I do with my life now? I woke up Sunday morning, this was three days after the judge's son had died and was buried. And I woke up and I said, you know, I think what I need to do was Sunday morning, I need to go to church. I hadn't been to church in so long. But it was four in the morning, you know. There's no church. They have early services, but not that early. And so... This idea came to my mind that I'm going to go to Walmart. I wait, the Walmart close to where I live was open 24 7. I went to Walmart and I bought this big bouquet of flowers, and I had this brilliant idea that I'm going to go to the cemetery and place the flowers on his gravesite. Because, why? To say thank you, maybe? To show my respect? So I drove early in the morning to the cemetery. It was about a 20 to 30 minute drive. I got to the front gate, but there was a big gate blocking the cemetery and there was a sign that says close from sundown to sunrise. They don't want you going in there in the dark, obviously. But I had driven that far, so I parked my car and I thought, well, nobody can see me. I'll just walk in anyway. So I began to walk through this cemetery and it was one of those old, old cemeteries. There were, I don't know, I didn't count, more than a thousand and there were old tombstones. The wind was blowing. So, yeah, I was creeped out, right? But my eyes started, they acclimated to the darkness. And I started walking further and further to the direction I believed that the gravesite was in. And as I got closer, I noticed there was a huge mound of dirt really close to where the judge's son's gravesite was. And I thought, oh, they must have dug that up when I had left, and there's going to be another burial today. But the closer and closer I walked to the gravesite, the closer that mound of dirt looked like it was to his gravesite, until I got so close that I finally realized that's his gravesite. And I was like, the, I had seen them put the dirt into the whole covering casket, and now it's removed. And so this is where you get in your car and drive away really fast. <laughs> you ever yell at people, move, run, on the movies, you know, don't stay there. But I had to. Maybe it's curiosity. So I walked up closer And closer to the hole. And it was so dark I couldn't see down into what is it, six feet? I don't know. So I took out my phone and I turned on the light. The casket was there, but it was open, it was empty. And that's when you run, right? I thought, I'm going to fall in. I'm getting kind of weak. And so I just kind of backed up. And talking about confused. And as I looked up, I could tell on the horizon the sun was coming up. Just barely, just barely. Still dark. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, who did this? I'm thinking like, I guess they, did they exhume his Body, and they're gonna do an. uh, They're. I done an autopsy, I thought. And as I'm standing there, and still in the basic darkness, standing still, there was a feeling like a hand from behind. That was placed on my right shoulder. (laughs) Yeah, I'm scared. What do you do now? Do it do you like that? I was scared to turn around to see who or what it was. But I turned around. And and by the bottom of my jaw just I could hear my teeth rattling, I thought. It was just quivering. My legs and my knees were so weak, I thought I was gonna faint. Because it was him, the judge's son. And so, it was like, I'm hallucinating. (laughs) I can't see right. It's not a dream. Then I thought, oh man, this is like a ghost. That's what it is. So I took my hand and I put it on the shoulder of this ghost but it was no ghost it was him and I just began to cry just tears streaming down my cheek and for whatever reason and then because I'm thinking I saw him die I saw him be buried and he's standing before me, alive. And I'm thinking, who is he? And what does this mean for my life now? So, was that a true story? <laughs> Some of you are going, "What about this guy?" Okay, so maybe you figured out pretty soon. In- Oh, he's making that story up. Well, I did. Kind of. Truth is, that is my story. Truth is, that's your story. That's real. This is the story of what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, and so. The benediction, the charge as we leave today that I would give you is don't leave today and say, oh, that was so nice. Those flowers on the cross. Eddie wore a jacket today. Matt had on his... (laughs) Got his big boy clothes on. (laughs) Oh, let it go beyond that. Let it go beyond that. Because it's your story. Because it's true. To ask the question... Again, who is this man Jesus? And what does this mean for my life from here on out? God bless you. Have a great week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.